This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost episode number nine? We here at the Word of the Week try to be good hosts. Every week you show up here at our virtual home, and we dish out a fine multi-course meal prepared from the best ingredients we've been able to dig up and carefully arrange and present to please your intellectual palate. At least, we do our best. However good a host you are, though, you occasionally find yourself strapped for time and stretched thin, and you didn't have time to go to the store, and you're about to have a dining room full of people expecting dinner. Then you do the only thing you can do. Like a hobbit who finds himself hosting a dozen dwarves, you scramble around, gather whatever you've got in your pantry, throw it on the table, and hope it'll be enough to fill their bellies and you don't end up with any bent forks or chipped plates. Or have to sit through a terrible cartoony song and dance number about bent forks and chipped plates. Unfortunately, we here at the Word of the Week are about to head off for a grand adventure to a far-off land. We're going to Vancouver, the Canadian one, to shut up and sit down and play some games at Shucks, the gaming convention hosted by the podcast and video network of the same name. Well, half of us are going anyway. The other half are going to be sitting around like a hobbit's young adopted nephew waiting for a sequel when it's our turn to have a grand adventure. Fortunately, we keep a well-stocked pantry of leftovers. Yes, we're doing another Lost episode. This is, of course, a semi-regular tradition we have wherein we gather the leftover bits that had to be trimmed from our previous scripts, arrange them nicely, and call them an episode. So enjoy this quick meal of leftovers, and remember to turn off the light and lock up when you're done. Because we're going on an adventure. See you later. Let's start with the freshest of the ingredients we dug out of our larder. Actually, let's start by wondering about the word larder. A larder is, of course, a dedicated room or even a small outbuilding for storing food. And before refrigerators were common, they were all the rage. And they were usually purposely constructed to stay cool. For example, larders, in Europe and America at least, were usually constructed on the northern side of a house or property to limit their exposure to sunlight and they were built as low to the ground as possible. Certainly on the ground floor, but usually even slightly below grade if possible. And they often had small glassless windows to allow air circulation without trapping heat. But to keep out insects, those windows were usually covered with a fine linen mesh. Many even included one or more low stone slabs on which meat or other food could be kept cool. That was called a thrall. But have you ever wondered why a larder is called a larder? What does it have to do with fat? Well, actually, fat has to do with larders. The word larder comes from a Middle English word that comes from a French word that comes from a Latin word. And the word means bacon. Well, sort of. It actually means a piece of cured pork. And it might be related to a Greek word, which means basically delicious. Would you be surprised to learn that bacon was once synonymous with delicious? Of course not. Anyway, before, during, and after the Middle Ages, the pig was regarded as a sort of wonder animal because pretty much every cut of it was edible and tasty, and because if you salted or cured it, it would keep for a long time. 
In fact, many sources repeat an old quote that we absolutely can't dig up any sort of citation for, but we're including simply because it's amusing. A pig was a vital source of food. It can be salted and preserved, and traditionally, you can eat every part of it except for its oink. And so, in ages past, the larder was primarily used to store cuts of salted or cured pork from hooks on the ceiling. So it was essentially a pork room, a bacon room. And the meaning of the word lard evolved to refer to fatty cuts of bacon and then just to animal fat in general. And by the way, in a medieval household, larder was also a title. It referred to the person who was responsible for storing and preserving food, including bacon, as well as other meats, fishes, and even jams. But we digress. The freshest thing in our larder is a brief mention of something that had to be cut out of our last episode regarding brigands and words that sound like brigand and may or may not be related. To avoid confusion, we decided not to bring up a particular type of 16th century sailing vessel called a brigantine and its cousin, with which it was often confused, a brig. Now, the name of the ship is actually related to the word brigand, and not just in the they both come from the word meaning soldier type way, actually in a more specific way. They were favored by bands of Mediterranean pirates and raiders. In other words, unlike brigandine armor, brigantine ships were called that because they were favored by brigands. Isn't this fun? Originally, the brigantine was a two-masted ship that could also be powered by rowers. But eventually, particularly in the waters north of Europe, brigantines became pure sailing vessels and dispensed with the oars. And thus, they were easily confused with a similar two-masted sailing ship, the brig. And the difference between the two was the rigging of the mainsail. And this is going to get complicated. The mainsail is the principal sail on a ship. Large sailing vessels can have two or even three masts, and there can be several sails affixed to each mast. Now, they had to do that because ships got bigger and heavier and required all of those sails to push the ship through the water. But they were also working with some pretty tricky limits. You could only make a mast so tall before it threatened to tip the whole ship or just fall over, and you could only make the sails so big before the canvas became too heavy to hoist, because people had to hoist those sails. And for that matter, you could only hoist a sail so high because of technicalities in the construction of the hoops that guided it up the mast and so on. So ships got complicated. But one mast was taller than the others. This was your main mast. It did most of the work. And one sail was bigger and more prominent than the others. It did most of the work. That was your main sail. And by the way... The sailing vernacular is to pronounce it mainsail, not mainsail. The thing that made a brigantine a brigantine and not a brig is that it had a gaff-rigged mainsail. And gaff-rigging was the most popular type of fore-and-aft rigging. What does that mean? Well, a square-rigged sail is hung between two horizontal spars that run parallel to the keel of the ship, the spine of the ship. And it's great for sailing with the wind, but it has a couple of weaknesses. One is, of course, sailing in directions other than the one the wind wants you to go in. But the others have to do with the fact that those spars, those yards, 
are really heavy, and they all have to be anchored at their tips, at their yard arms, and along their lengths to keep the sail oriented properly. That rigging is complicated, and it required a huge amount of manpower just to get a square-rigged ship ready to sail. A fore-and-aft rigging involves just anchoring the sail at two points on the ship, one at the front and one at the back. And gaff rigging was a way to do that. You had an oblong, four-sided sail, wasn't quite a square or rectangle, and it was anchored between two spars, the boom at the bottom and the gaff at the top, hence gaff rigging. Now, a gaff-rigged ship gave up some power and speed, but it became less subject to the whims of the wind, and it required a smaller crew and a less complicated rigging. The brigantine, though, split the difference. Its mainsail was a gaff-rigged sail, and the rest of its sails were square-rigged sails. A brig was entirely square-rigged. And we should also point out that an additional topsail, yes, topsail is topsail, could be added among the mainsail. And a true brigantine had a square-rigged topsail above the mainsail, as opposed to hermaphrodite brigantines or brig schooners. But let's not overcomplicate this, because this is just a fresh appetizer course in this meal of leftovers. For something a bit more filling, we'd like to offer up a story leftover from our episode about familiar spirits. It's the story of a powerful, magical animal imbued with dark powers by the devil. In fact, the animal might even have been the devil in disguise. Or it might have been a noblewoman who had been transformed by the devil into an animal. Whatever the animal's true nature, it served its master faithfully as a powerful, familiar spirit until it was finally slain in battle in 1644. And what was this terrible spirit of satanic power? It was a poodle. A white poodle. Named Boy. In 1619, Frederick V, a political official from, and briefly king of, Bohemia, and his wife, Elizabeth Stuart, daughter of James I of England, had a son named Rupert. His father's brief kingship thing is why he was nicknamed Prince Rupert of the Rhine. His true title was Count Palatine of the Rhine, Duke of Bavaria. Now, Frederick V was part of the Protestant Union. If you paid attention in some of our previous episodes, you know that in the region of the world around Bohemia, a little conflict was going on between the Protestant Union and the Catholics of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. A tiny thing called the Thirty Years' War. Go back to our episode about mercenaries for more details. The family was forced to flee their home during the conflict, which is why the kingship was brief. Ultimately, Prince Rupert lost his father to the war. And so, at the age of 13, Rupert was sent to live with his uncle in England. That was King Charles I. In England, Rupert became a soldier and a bodyguard to Charles' son Frederick, and eventually returned to the mainland to fight in the same conflict that had orphaned him. And he distinguished himself as a soldier. But while fighting against the Holy Roman Empire's forces in 1638, he was captured and imprisoned in Linz in present-day Austria for three years. The imprisonment was very hard on Rupert, 
and during his imprisonment a visiting noble, the Earl of Arundel, gave Rupert two hunting poodles for companionship, one black and one white. The black didn't survive, but the white one, which he named Boy, became Prince Rupert's best friend, as dogs are wont to do. After his release, Prince Rupert returned to England and rejoined the army of King Charles I. This was in 1641. And if you remember our episode about rats, you'll remember a small conflict was about to break out. A tiny thing called the English Civil War. That was in 1642. And it was essentially a war over who got to run the government of England. The king or the parliament. Obviously, Prince Rupert was on the king's side. And if you know how this story goes, you'll know he didn't back the winning horse. That's not important. What is important is that Prince Rupert was given command of the Royalist Cavalry, and he won a series of decisive early victories, starting at the first skirmish of the war in Worcester and the first real battle of the war in Edgehill. By 1643, he'd taken a lot of territory for the Royalist forces, including Bristol, Nottinghamshire, Lancashire, and other places with decidedly British-sounding names. Now we know what you're thinking. You're wondering what the dog boy has to do with all of this. Well, apart from accompanying Prince Rupert to some of the battles, and usually being tied up well away from the fighting, absolutely nothing. But the royalists rallied around Prince Rupert of the Rhine, and he had this ugly habit of winning, and the parliament didn't care for that. And so, they began circulating a number of pamphlets identifying Prince Rupert as a warlock and a thrall of the devil. And the evidence was that he had that dog with him. A dog that was obviously a familiar spirit, granted by the devil, or perhaps even the devil himself. Seriously, the English Parliament circulated actual printed documents claiming that a little white poodle was the devil and that his master was in his thrall. And this story wasn't just a small thing. It spread... Prince Rupert of the Rhine was already pretty well-known in Central Europe, and his faithful poodle was well-known too. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire at the time supposedly sent agents to scour Europe and find a dog similar to the one that accompanied Prince Rupert. And the poor dog's good name was being slandered to discredit his master and demoralize the English royalists. And then... Tragedy. In 1644, Prince Rupert had been sent to break a siege at York, but he encountered Oliver Cromwell and his roundheads at Marston Moor. He left Boy tied up in the Royalist camp, but the dog got free of his leash and chased his master into battle, and the poodle was killed, and the Royalists were routed. York fell to the parliamentary forces. A few months later, Rupert, now the Captain General of the Royalist Army, met the parliamentary forces at the Battle of Naseby and lost again. Then he failed to hold the city of Bristol, and King Charles I fled into exile, but not before firing Prince Rupert. And the Parliament had him banished from England. It was as if he'd lost all of his luck and ability. Strangely. But it was probably just a turn of bad luck. After leaving England, Prince Rupert would continue to lead Royalist naval forces, and he'd eventually return to military service in England after the restoration of the monarchy. And he had a long career as a soldier, merchant, scientist, and statesman after that. And he was one of the founding members of the Royal Society. 
so his pooch probably had nothing to do with his victories. Or maybe he just learned how to get by without the devil helping him out. Now, just because we're having a meal of leftovers, that doesn't mean we have to skimp on the dessert. Nice frozen treat to end the meal on a refreshing note. Thankfully, we do have a bit of icy goodness from our avalanche episode. See, one of the things we didn't get to touch on was that among the various conditions that create avalanches, the slope of the mountain is of particular importance. If the slope is too steep, the snow won't pile up into layers and those layers won't freeze together. And if the slope is too shallow, well, then sheets of snow and ice won't break off and go sliding down the mountain due to gravity. And it just so happens that the perfect slopes to create avalanche conditions also create the perfect slopes for skiing. And that doesn't create a hazard just for sportsmen. It also creates a hazard for soldiers, especially in the Alps. Hannibal's soldiers weren't the last soldiers to lose their lives to an avalanche. In 1916, during World War I, over 10,000 Italian and Austrian soldiers were killed during the so-called White Friday avalanches while fighting in the Italian Alps. It has been suggested that one side or the other may have purposely incited the avalanches, but both sides lost huge numbers to the disaster. And many of the Italian soldiers were members of one of the 88 Alpine ski battalions. In point of fact, skiing has been a part of warfare for a long time. Heck, skiing has been part of human history for a surprisingly long time. Cave drawings suggest Paleolithic hunters in Northern Europe and across Asia may have been using skis as far back as 20,000 years ago. And the oldest fragments of ancient skis come from Russia and date back to 6,000 BCE. See, skis, along with snowshoes, were invented to cross wetlands and marshes in the winter when they froze over. And they enabled people to hunt elk and reindeer across the frozen tundras of Central Asia and Northern Europe. And that basically leads to cross-country skiing, which is also called Nordic skiing because the Norse peoples of Europe relied heavily on cross-country skiing. But fast forward to 1807 and the outbreak of the Napoleonic Wars, which we've now mentioned in several episodes. The Danes and Norwegians, while fighting against the Swedes, started to rely on skis to move quickly across snow-covered terrain. And in the Alps, soldiers there used skis to quickly maneuver on the snow-covered slopes. And ski warfare may have started even earlier than that. There are records that describe Norwegian and Swedish skiing rifle units in various wars between those nations that took place in the 1700s. By the early 1800s, a number of training exercises for skiing soldiers had evolved fully into sports. These included cross-country ski races, Nordic skiing, and racing downhill on mountain slopes dodging around trees, alpine skiing. In addition, though, the Norwegian army also had a training regimen that involved a cross-country skiing race combined with target shooting. In Oslo, in 1860, the first national skiing competitions were held and included various sports. And it was the downhill skiing, the alpine skiing, that really helped the sport take off. By 1880, people all over Europe wanted to try this exciting new sport of racing down a mountainside on skis. And that's what cemented the Alps as the center of the skiing world. In 1924, the first Winter Olympic Games were held in Chamonix, France, and it included Nordic skiing. But there was a great outcry for the now very popular alpine skiing to be included. 
In the 1936 Winter Olympic Games in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, Germany, alpine skiing was added to the roster. Soon thereafter, the invention of the metal ski and various improvements to skiing boots made the sport much more accessible to the public. Oh, and there is a third skiing-related Olympic sport. See, at the 1924 Games, the Norwegians offered a demonstration of their so-called military patrol exercise, in which riflemen on skis would engage in cross-country ski races and then engage in target shooting. The military patrol demonstration was carried out again in the 1928 Games, and the 1936 Games, and the 1948 Games. And in 1948, the Union Internationale de Pentathlon Moderne et Biathlon was formed to advance the popularity of two sports. The pentathlon, which is a five-part competition dating all the way back to the first Greek Olympic Games, and includes the long jump, javelin throw, discus throw, foot race, and wrestling, and the biathlon, a cross-country skiing race and rifle shooting event. Now, the pentathlon had been part of the modern Olympic Games since 1906, but the biathlon didn't get added to the Games as a sport until 1960, though the International Union had started holding world championships in 1958. So, if you've ever wondered where the idea of an Olympic sport that involved a cross-country skiing race and a rifle shootout began, well, it was in the Napoleonic War. And with that fun little historical treat to top it off, we hope you've enjoyed this little meal of leftovers we've prepared for you. And we promise you a nice, full, hearty dinner next week. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.